messages yet. Um, let me remind you that they are available on our website. This morning you may be hopping into the middle of a, an important part of Israel's history and not really have much of a clue how we got here. So it has been a series of sermons that has been building up. And I would encourage you to check out the website. and The sermons are available there for free. Download, stream, podcast, whatever. Um, and you can get all of those and, and, uh, and fill in some of the blanks that we won't be addressing this morning. Let me also remind you at the conclusion of the service this morning, we will also be observing the Lord's Supper. Um, so we ask what Scripture asks, that you would spend that time in examination of yourself. Um, you're not required to be a member of First Baptist Church, but what we do ask is that you would uh, check to make sure that you do know Jesus. We invite you uh, to participate if that is how uh, you choose to worship this morning um, in that time of examination and worship, remembering what Christ did for you on the cross of Calvary. We jumped over an important part of Israel's history this week. Um, you may remember we looked at Israel's desire to have a king. They wanted one so they could be just like the other nations. And unfortunately, that's what happened. God's distinct, unique people uh, became just like the other nations. Uh, the king that they, had, that they had before them was a man named Saul, a very tall man. He seemed to fit the role of a warrior, a leader. Um, even though he may have possessed great battlefield skills, he still lost in spiritual skills. He was a physical giant, in a sense, but he was a moral uh, small man. He did not accomplish the great moral qualifications that is to be the king of Israel. You must remember that in the Old Testament... A king was gauged, the success and the quality of a king was not gauged off of how much land he had, had acquired or how many enemies he had defeated. The man of God, the king in the Old Testament, was, was gauged by how well he kept in step with God, how well he walked in obedience to God. And Saul, you may remember, had been given a command to wait seven days before you attack the Philistines. He almost waited seven days and then lit the offering himself, uh, drawing the ire of Samuel, the prophet and priest at the time. God gave him another chance. He was told to go out and to wipe out the Amalekites and utterly destroy them. Uh, but Saul failed to utterly destroy the Amalekites and brought back the king and some of the choice livestock. And God said at that moment, when Saul had disobeyed by living out partial obedience to the call, God said that you will no longer be king. I've chosen another man. In chapter 17, one of the great stories in all the Old Testament is David fighting Goliath. David rises to a place of recognition, um, especially national recognition by his defeat of Goliath um, with Saul in the background. David, during this time, has become Saul's assistant, if you will. He has become Saul's armor bearer, and he has also become Saul's personal musician. At the time when God had removed, had said Saul is no longer king, God had removed his Holy Spirit from Saul and had placed the Holy Spirit on David, who was going to be successor of Saul. Saul, in his desire to always keep himself promoted and always focusing on himself, could not relinquish the throne. He found it very difficult to let go of the throne and the power and the prominence and the place that he had. And as David begins this rise, what we find is again Saul, whose whole life is wrapped up in himself, finds that this man David is now going to be the one in whom God has chosen. 
And I want us this morning, as we look at this story of Saul's jealousy, I want to show you uh, through the scriptures how it quickly moves and begins eating and destroying and plays a major part in the demise of Saul's life. We have seen the rise and now we're starting to see the fall or the decline of Saul. I want to jump down into verse number, uh, chapter 18. Look at verse 5 with me if you would. This is after David has slain Goliath. It says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he, as he prophesied in the house. So David played music with his hand, as at other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped the presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him a captain over a thousand, and he went out and came before the people. And notice carefully verse 14. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. When he saw that he behaved wisely, he was afraid of him. For those of you that go through very difficult times with your boss or with your co-workers or have those people in your life that seem to have it out for you, I would encourage you to read the early life of David. I would encourage you to take chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, all the rest through 1 Samuel and really spend time in pouring over those verses. Because what we find in the last part here of 1 Samuel is a contrast between two characters. We find one man in King Saul who is absolutely wrapped up in himself. We find one man who is power hungry, who, who only cares at the center of his being, he only cares about himself. And we see his actions. We see how he acts and how he reacts and how he interacts with other people. And then on the other side, conversely, we see David, who has risen to this place of prominence, and, and we see how he reacts and responds to Saul, and how he does it in such a wise, positive manner. He has, later on in the story, he has ample opportunity to kill Saul, but he does not kill the king. Saul ultimately wants to see him dead and makes every attempt at doing it. Let me, you might jot this verse down. Hop over to the very first thing this morning, and it's this, is that Saul loved David. Now, I have to use that in the past tense, because where we pick up in chapter 18, Saul does not love David. Typically, you don't love people by throwing a spear at them, hoping to pin them against the wall. 
If you do, you probably ought to redefine love. Because love, by throwing a spear at someone to pin them against the wall, is not love. So I say this, and I bring this up about Saul loving David in the past, or in, in other translations it says he liked him very much. I want to bring this up for one reason. Because this, this fact that Saul loved David in chapter 16, verse 21, the fact that that is included in Scripture tells us something, and we should all really pause for a moment and take notice of this. We find a man who at the end of the story has David as his enemy. We find this man, Saul, who we've been studying for these few weeks, we find this man wants nothing more than for David to be wiped off the planet. But before it ever gets to that point, Saul has great affection for David. I want us to just consider for one moment that within the span of two chapters, which is, this is a relatively short amount of time, Saul goes from having great affection for a, a, a guy, a, a great concern, a great friendship, a great, great, he, he, he thinks a lot of David, for a man to go from one end of liking this guy all the way over to the next end of wanting to kill him. If anything, it speaks to how quickly sin can grow and how quickly sin can destroy and how quickly sin can tear down and how quickly our moral fiber can deteriorate if we don't allow sin to be killed. Do you remember me telling you before that sin doesn't die? Sin doesn't die on its own. Envy doesn't die. Lust doesn't die. Greed doesn't die. Those things don't die. You have to kill them. Uh, sin is so much a part of our human nature that it finds the perfect environment within which to grow. And it's not going to die on its own. It's not just going to go away. It is woven so, so closely into our moral makeup that we have to actually kill it. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that we must mortify the old man. We must put to death the old man. We must die to ourselves and die to sin. Saul does not do that. Let me ask you just to bring something up. If you jotted down chapter 16, verse 21, you're going to find out that there was a reason why Saul thought so much of David. And it was this. David served Saul. See, when the Holy Spirit, when God had removed His Spirit from him under that Old Testament and had placed it on David, this distressing spirit had overcome Saul. Saul was troubled greatly because he had now recognized that the Spirit, the empowering of God for that particular purpose in that particular time had been removed from him. By the way, let me interject this. Aren't you glad to know that under the New Covenant, that there is no chance that the Holy Spirit will ever be taken from a believer. Aren't you glad that Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that we have been sealed as a guarantee with the Holy Spirit of God? Under the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit could go and He could move and He could equip and He could empower for God's specific purpose and He could be taken away and moved. But today, that is not the case. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer and will always be there throughout all eternity. Saul loved David because of what David would do for him. When, David, when Saul was distressed, David would come in and play. When, when Saul needed someone to carry his armor, there was David. Saul liked David because of what he would do for him. We must be cautious that we also don't view relationships, that we don't view 
our world through how, in, in every way through a lens on how does this affect me. You know, one of the dangers is that when we spend our life focusing on relationships and situations and processing them only through the lens of how does this affect me, what we find is that we will eventually render ourselves useless to the kingdom of God. Having that attitude of how does this affect me? How does this relationship better me? How does all of this seem to fit in and to feed and to meet my needs? That selfish, selfish type of attitude in which we're always focusing on ourselves will render us useless for the kingdom of God. Because the Bible teaches us, Jesus taught us, that we are to put Him first and the cares of others over ourselves. And then lastly, to care for us. In order to be effective in the kingdom of God, we should always put the cares of God first and the cares of others next. Living a selfless life is the true key to joy in life and effectiveness in Christ's service. So we see first that Saul like David because of what he would do for him. Maybe some of our relationships are that way too. Some of our marriage relationships can become like that. We can begin looking at our spouse and, and, and looking at our spouse only through the lens of what does our spouse do for us rather than how it was designed that we are to live for our spouse and vice versa. Notice with me for a moment verse 8. When the ladies are there on the side of the road singing the praises of Saul, uh, which appears to be more of David, Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands. By the way, are those true? David had never slain 10,000. But indeed, the slaying of the giant appeared to be such a great accomplishment that they ascribed to him greater numbers than they did King Saul. Then Saul was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David 10,000s. And to me, and to me, they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Proverbs 14, verse 30 says that envy is like rottenness to the bones. Envy is like rottenness to the bones. If you see, the second point is that David or Saul moves from loving David to begin envying David. If you remember through our series... Last week and the week before that, Saul had gotten to the place where he was going to kill his own son. Kill his own son who began to receive praise and recognition for the victories on the battlefield. This man knew no limits. His, his selfish ambitions and desires knew no limits. What would appall many had actually entertained a thought and almost worked itself out into action in his life. And now we see the very key. We see the core of what Saul's issue was. He says, what more can he have but the kingdom? What more can he have but the kingdom? I think it's safe to say that Saul looked at other people. I think it's safe to say that Saul was concerned about what other people thought. I believe it's safe to say that Saul did recognize what was going on in other people's lives. He didn't have these blinders on as to only look at himself. But when he saw what was going on in other people's lives, 
when he saw these women coming out dancing, giving David more praise than him, when he saw that they were ascribing particular numbers, and he could count those numbers and see that from their perspective, David was a greater man than he, he then internalizes it. Rather than recognizing that a great victory had been accomplished on the battlefield and being thankful that God's people had once again seen the working of God in their midst, instead of rejoicing and praising God, he was angry because he felt as though he was being neglected. I have two dogs, as many of you know. I only have one on my desk. For those of you that have been in my office, I have one picture of, my, of one dog. And someone asked me why I don't have a picture of my Weimaraner. I said, well, she's just not pretty. And, and she's not. So I have a picture of my pretty dog on the desk. But the funny thing is that I have a Great Dane and a Weimaraner, and, and we let them out in the yard, and we'll play, it's, and, and they'll play and, and run around. And, and I've realized something, and, and it's not just with my pets, but it's also with my kids. That sounded kind of strange. But there, there's a connection. There's a connection. When I go outside and I want to bring my dogs to me, I found out that when I call for Lincoln, my Great Dane, my Great Dane doesn't come. My Weimaraner comes. And when I call for Kobe, my Weimaraner doesn't come, but my Great Dane comes. Anybody in the world have an idea why? They think that the other one is going to get something. And they know that if I call both names, Lincoln, Kobe, they both don't come. They know it's a trap. But if I call one of their names, what will happen is the other one will come. And then when the other one comes, you know what happens? The other one starts to follow because it doesn't want to get with something that it thinks is its. I think there was way too many its in that. But you understand what I'm talking about. The dogs only come when they think that the other one is going to get something and they don't want to be left out. They won't come when you call their own name. And you know what? My sons are starting to do the same thing. Hawkins, come here. And he will act like I'm not even in the room until I say, hey, Hyatt, come here, come here. Ooh, Hyatt's going to get something, so I better get in there. It is amazing how that is so woven. Seriously, though, it is amazing how that idea... That if somebody else is going to get something, I want in on it too. I don't want to be left out. And guys, I believe that, what it, that that sin nature that has affected my dogs, and that same sin nature that is wound and bound up in the heart of my child, guys, if I'm going to be honest with you, it is something that I have to fight too. The idea of somebody getting Something that I'm not can breed and produce a very dangerous ulcer in my soul. The problem is, the problem is, the great, the great cure, the great cure for envy, the great cure for it is this, contentment. Contentment. This speaks to our desire to have and to get and to acquire. And Saul had set in a place of power and prestige and prominence as the king, and yet he still wanted more. For those of you that think stature in this world is going to satisfy, look at King Saul. 
And for those of you that think power and prestige and recognition is going to satisfy you, then Saul should have been the most satisfied person in all the world. Here he was, the first king of God's own people. And yet that man continued to go on a quest to get all of the power that he possibly could. I tell you that the great cure, the great cure for envy, the great cure for greed is contentment. Recognizing what we have and being satisfied with it as a gift from God. The Bible tells us that we are deserving of nothing. We're deserving of no good thing. Our sin nature has separated us from God and everything we have is a gift of grace from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. Everything we have ultimately has come from Him. And for that we ought to be thankful. The envy did not stay there. He focused on what he was not getting and what David was. Rather than being concerned uh, with his own state, his own moral state, he was worried about feeding himself and feeding his ego. The Bible tells us in verse 10, And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand at, at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. Now he's taking actions into his own hands. He's now beginning to scheme. A man once said, a life of faith is a life where you don't have to scheme. A life of faith is a life that you don't have to scheme. And here Saul is scheming. How do I get this man out of the picture? How do I get him to the place where he is no longer an issue? How do I wipe David out? Now, let's poll the, let's poll the congregation. How, you could signify by saying amen. I'm going to ask you two questions and you tell me what you think. This is not a choose your own adventure book, by the way. How many of you think that Saul was trying to kill David? Say amen. You can only vote once. How many of you think that Saul was trying to scare David? Say amen. Alright. Well, seven of you participated in that poll. And I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And it did appear that it was five to two that many believed that Saul was trying to kill David. And I think that there can be an argument made. You typically don't throw a spear at somebody hoping to pin them to the wall. If it gets that close, you know that you're probably running the risk of killing them. And that fits back into David's M.O. It's quite possible that Saul was making an excuse for himself saying, well, I was just trying to pin you to the wall, David. But at any rate, consider this for a moment. David or Saul is greatly distressed. The Spirit of God has left him. He has messed up. He has, he has gotten to the place where he is considered by God no longer the king. Here's this man who is robbing all of his recognition. Saul's own son considers David his best friend in the whole world. Saul's daughter, Michal, loves him greatly. They're going to get married. I mean, Saul's looking around everywhere and he cannot escape the presence that is David. Every time Saul sends him out to do something, David does it with excellence. And Saul's had it. He's finally got to take matters into his own hands. And he takes a spear and he throws it at David, but it misses. Guys, this has now moved from envy to resentment. He started out loving him. He moved to envy. And now he absolutely resents him. The thought, the appearance, the idea, the concept, everything. The appearance of David now makes him sick. Because it is a constant reminder of what he does not have I, I tell you this envy can drive you mad there will always be more people 
that have more than you. And you will always find a reason to dislike somebody because there are always people who have what you don't have, you want, and you feel like you should have. Contentment is the only great thing, the great tool that satisfies a soul. And that contentment comes through our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, living in a recognition of His blessings for us. In verse 10, he threw a spear. Some have suggested that he tried to scare David off by that, much like you would do with a dog that wanders into your yard or a chicken that gets into your garden. Yes, we just became chicken owners at our house. But. Look at verse 25 for a moment with me. After Saul throws the spear and it misses David, it says in verse 25, Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Saul gives David a, a, an order. Gives him a specific plan and a battle that he needs to go out into. And one that was considered to be a pretty significant battle. One in which Saul thought David would certainly lose. If David's killed on the battlefield, then ultimately the Philistines will be the enemy. If David comes back and is not victorious in this battle in which all of the, all of the odds are stacked against him, and then he will come back a loser from that battle, thus changing the people's perception. But that is not at all what happens. Saul sends David into this, into this, this scenario where the odds are stacked against him in the battle, and David excels. David does exactly what Saul had asked him to do. He wins the battle, he defeats the Philistines, and he once again pads his own reputation, even though that was not his intent. God was blessing David right in the midst of Saul's life. Guys, I'll tell you, this battle with David, this battle between David and Saul, goes on for what we believe to be about ten years years that Saul is attempting to kill David guys you may not your envy or that's what you struggle with always worried about what other people have or what other people are doing or what you're not getting the truth of the matter is this it may not it may not lead you to the place where you're going to kill them you may never throw a spear or a knife or shoot a gun at anybody that has more than you. But even though you might not physically kill that person, you may come to the place in your life where they are dead to you. You may come to the place in your life where you have separated yourself from them. You have considered them, you, you have, you have considered them to be gone off of your radar. You know what? The Bible tells us that we're not to have that type of a heart. How can we be useful for the kingdom of God? when we are constantly pushing people away or considering them to be dead, separating ourselves from them. The Bible says that we are to love. Jesus commanded us to love even our enemies. It moves from Saul loving David, and then it turns to his envy because of the recognition that David is getting. And then it grows, that envy grows, and it becomes a resentment in which he is actively seeking the demise of David. And let me bring you to this last thing. This final thing. And I want us to look at the source of Saul's issue. Verse 12. 
verse 14 and verse 28 of chapter 18 tell us something. Verse 12, verse 14, and verse 28. Those three verses all have this in common. In one chapter, three times, the writer says that the Lord was with David. The reason the author of 1 Samuel is recording something so frequently, that's my timer. I've got to wrap this up. The reason, the reason the writer of Samuel says three times that God is with David is because he's drawing a contrast. And the contrast is this. God was not with Saul. Three times it says in the Scripture, in such a short amount of time, the author is making sure that all of us that read it understand and get it through our heads that God was working in David. God was working through David. David is considered to be, by God's own standard, a man after his own heart. David is, stands in such stark contrast to Saul. David cared more about what God thought. David cared more about pleasing God than pleasing anybody else. David didn't care what other people thought of him. David cared more about what people thought about God. And then you contrast that to this man who even when he was anointed king, even when he had the Holy Spirit, he did not care at all about the things of God. He disregarded the commandments. He made light of the teachings. He was not concerned about anything other than his own appearance. I tell you that when we sit on the throne of our lives, when you and I sit on that throne of our lives, there is no room for another. And Saul was so distressed, so distressed, I have to believe, not just because he saw the rise of the man who would replace him, but I have to believe that he was distressed because he was beginning to see the effects of what it was to live a self-centered, selfish life. He saw that the more he tried to feed that ego, the less and less and less he was being satisfied. David's son, Solomon, wrote, we believe, the book Ecclesiastes. And in the book Ecclesiastes, Solomon is speaking about spending time in his life, filling his life with things. He talks about trying to fill his life with laughter or mirth, as the King James calls it. Partying and laughter and rejoicing. And he talks about trying to fill his life with that. And he says that that didn't work either. So he tried to fill his life with accomplishments, building great gardens and great monuments, the book of Ecclesiastes says. And he realized too that that wasn't going to satisfy and it didn't. The Bible says that he, or Solomon even says that he tried to fill him his life with possessions and, and horses and all of these other things that, that, that the, the preacher Solomon was bringing into his life to try to find that great contentment. And he comes to the conclusion of the matter 
and realizes that none of those things were able to provide for him the true peace and contentment that he needed in life. And one of the great reasons given in Ecclesiastes is when Solomon in all of his wisdom, David's own son, when King Solomon says that God has put the world in their heart. God has put the world in their heart. And that might sound like a strange conclusion that Solomon gives. When in reality, the word world that is used that we often translate literally means eternity. God has placed eternity in their hearts. You've heard that there is truly a God-sized hole, an eternal hole in each one of us. And I believe that what we find in the midst of these two men, what brings such a stark contrast between a man after God's own heart and a man after his own preservation, what we find in these two men that makes all the difference in the world is their relationship with God. And I believe in life. I say this on all the authority of the Scripture. That you will never be satisfied outside of a personal saving relationship with the one who created you and formed you for that very reason. I promise you, that hole that is in your soul, that hole that is in your life, I promise you it is in the shape of a cross. I promise you, just as sure as I'm standing here, that you will never find true contentment. You will never find true peace. You will never find true satisfaction apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ before the world was ever formed. God knew who you would be. God was forming you and making you to be His own partner. He formed you for the purpose that you would know Him and that you would praise Him and that you would walk in fellowship with Him. And yet all of this while, we go through life and we try to fill our things with dirt. We try to fill our soul with things that are going to pass away and perish. And we wonder why we can never get full. We wonder why I have to have this and I have to have this and I have to have all of these other things. It's because the things of the world and that which is temporary will never satisfy the eternal soul which is the true longing in every heart. And I pray this morning, my prayer, our prayer as a staff before service, is that if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you would not waste another moment digging through the trash of this world, trying to fill your soul with something that will never, ever satisfy or meet that need. I promise you, if you reject Jesus, if you neglect a personal relationship with Him, I promise you this, you will continue a life of going through this world perpetually looking for that satisfaction. I believe you will be distressed. I believe you will be unsatisfied. I believe you will never find the fulfillment in this life or in the life to come that only comes, only comes through having that cross-sized hole filled through a personal relationship with Jesus. Today you can say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I have missed the mark of your standard. 
And today, God, I ask you to forgive me for all of the sins I've committed. And in doing that, God, I ask your Son to come into my life and to be not just my Savior, but my Lord. God, I get off the throne of my life. I am not today. I am making a management change. I am under new management today, God. I am going to live by your teachings. I'm going to walk in your ways. I'm going to seek your honor. Help me, God, look through a lens that does not say, how does this affect me, but how does it affect you? Help me, God, have a paradigm change in my life. Father, I thank You. I thank You, God, that You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And the greatest of all gifts was Your sacrifice for us. And Father, I remember that Jesus was placed in the manger or the feed trough. And that baby laid there in that straw, Lord, where animals would come to eat. I'm reminded, Lord, that we also can truly be nourished, truly nourished from that Savior who was born that day for us. God, I thank You that You are the only one that satisfies. For those that are looking and searching for real satisfaction and contentment, for a real rock in which to stand on in their life. I pray, Lord, that they have prayed that prayer to receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. For those today that have been struggling, Lord, focusing on everything through the lens of how it affects us, I pray that we would see the damage that that brings and that You would change our heart, that You would cleanse us this morning as we ask for Your forgiveness and reconciliation. In Jesus' name. The Bible says in Mark chapter 14, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. And in the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and said to him one by one, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is the one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him, but woe to the man in whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, he says, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives. Barry, would you ask a blessing on the bread, please? Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. You may eat the bread. 
And then he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Brother Mike, would you please ask a blessing on the juice? Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. You may drink the juice. Surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. Thank you all for coming this morning. Um, I'm going to ask Van Palmer to close us in prayer. And after he does, let me just remind you that as uh, this church for a long time, when we have taken up the Lord's Supper, at the conclusion of that service, we usually have gentlemen standing at the doors. If you would like to give, to a, it's, a, it's a love offering. It goes to our benevolence fund um, to help meet the needs for some people who have, have benevolent needs. Um, so if you would like to give at the door, that is fine. Um, if you are not able to give or would not like to give, then just walk right on by and, and tell them thank you. So um, thank you so much for coming tonight. Don't forget 6 o'clock, our evening service again tonight. Brother Van.